If we can't live in peace, then let's die in peace. I tell you, I don't care how many screams you hear, I don't care how many anguished cries, death is a million times preferable to ten more days of this life. Laura Johnston Cole, thank you so much for agreeing to come on and speak to me. Um, are you doing well? I am doing well. Yeah, thanks for asking, uh, and thank you for inviting me to be on to be in discussion with you. Um, for about the last twenty years, I've really wanted to open up the discussion about People's Temple. I feel like there's so many lessons to learn. And in many ways, we haven't learned the lessons yet. And so part of what I like to do is discuss, you know, maybe even the nitty gritty, discuss the details and figure out how it all happened under my watch. So that's why I'm interested in having the discussion. Definitely. And it's important to get, I think, to share the story. It's such a profound story that, you know, a lot of people don't know about. I remember when I first found out about Jonestown, it incredibly shocking and, and disturbing and the fact that i hadn't heard of it beforehand is quite astounding really but uh, the first thing i wanted to ask was what is jonestown to you when someone says because jonestown can have a lot of meanings it can mean the the disaster but and the the place itself but what is jonestown to you i i've had an interesting life um i lived you know 20 years 22 years before I joined People's Temple. And so I was an activist in the United States trying to fight racism and trying to, you know, figure out how to have a voice in politics. Then I was in People's Temple for 10 years. And then after I came back and survived that, I joined another cult called Synanon, and I lived there for 10 years. And then I came back, I got my education and I became a public school teacher. And I've been a public school teacher and activist since then. So I've had kind of a broad range of trying to figure out who I am and what my message should be. To me, Jonestown is my first cult. And uh, there's a kind of a joke we say, you know, you never forget your first cult. <laughs> And so I, um, I do find that no matter how I've passed on different things in my life, and I have always had a, you know, had a good life. I've traveled around the world to China and India and, and uh, Europe many times, and I've done a lot with my life to be proactive. But in a way, my heart of all hearts, the deepest part of my heart is what I had in Jonestown and what I lost in Jonestown. Yeah, and so no matter what I do, that is very much a part of me. And I want it to be. I, I want that to be a part of me, not something that I ignore or shut away in a closet. I can imagine. It's something, I think if you bottle up emotions like that, and I can see that you're getting you know quite emotional it's a very emotional and loaded topic but i think if you bottle emotions like that it can only eat you up inside so that's right and you can't live your life you know because i really have done both i have both embraced that 
I made terrible mistakes in Jonestown. I have embraced that I loved Jonestown and the community and the other members there. And I have embraced that, you know, I needed to move on. Like I'm married 37 years. I have a son who's 29, who's a high school history teacher, you know, who has uh, been passionate from early on about World War II and figuring that out. I mean, I have had a really good life, but it was not because I stopped thinking about Jonestown. It's just that I figured out a way to express it and discuss it and keep the ideas open. Definitely. We should, I should probably explain for anyone listening who doesn't know about Jonestown, but Jones, interject whenever you want if I'm not doing it justice. But Jonestown was the agricultural commune in Guyana where the People's Temple moved. Where, do you remember what year it was that the People's Temple emigrated to Guyana? Yes, so at the end of 1975, we had a small group of people who moved to Guyana to create a utopian community, we said. An all-race, you know, completely interracial, no racism, a kind of community. In and But it was so remote. That it was in Jonestown, Guyana. So Guyana is a tiny country that most people think is Ghana on the coast of Africa. So first of all, most people can't even find the country. And nobody knew that the capital was Georgetown. And we were 24 hours by boat. And I'm talking about rustic, you know, <laughs> like, like rustic, like rowboat almost to get into Jonestown. So we were just amazingly remote trying to create this community of a thousand people in the middle of a rainforest. And so we moved there and then gradually people from San Francisco, Los Angeles and other parts of the United States moved down too. Uh, When Jim started the idea, he only wanted 600 people there. He thought 600 people could create the kind of environment we want, feed and, you know, process enough food to feed the people three times a day so that it would be self-sufficient. And um, that would be the role model community that we wanted to keep referring to. And the reality was he oversold it so that in a hot second, he had a thousand people living there and a thousand more waiting to come over into a community that really was not able to to maintain food source for that amount of num- that number of people. I mean, for I've read about this, that for an agricultural commune, there was a, a severe lack of agricultural uh, <laughs> needs, needs to, you know, make uh, grow the food and provide for so many people. Uh, just to That's mention right. as well, Jim, obviously, that you were referring to is Jim Jones, the, is it right to call him a cult leader? Or the leader Absolutely. of the People's Temple, yeah. Uh, what was he yeah, like? Yeah, he um, so let me just say one more thing about the uh, agriculture oh, in Jonestown. Um, you know, even if you plant citrus trees, they take five to seven years to start blooming and having fruit. So we got down there and really within a year, we had 40 people. And within a year and a half, we had 500 people down there. So there, there was never a chance given to have enough agricultural going, enough agricultural supplies going to feed people. So early on, I think Jim realized that it was not going to ever be self-sufficient. And so we went along and made cottage industries. 
toys and dolls and uh, sold things at the different open markets and bartered and things like that. But Jonestown from the day one showed that it was not going to be self-sufficient to feed a thousand people three meals a day. So I think that one of the early um, signs that Jim had that something was going to go wrong was that when he realized that he had made a bad mistake and he was somebody who could never make a mistake, it had to be blamed on somebody else. So I do think that that's one of the early signs in Jonestown that um, there was trouble ahead because he doesn't know, he didn't know how to say, I'm sorry, I blew it, let's go back. And we were all stuck there. Do you think there was a um, almost a, a dictatorial aspect to Jim Jones or in the way, uh, I, I don't know, almost an egotism that he wouldn't accept blame for stuff and he'd be quite controlling? Oh, absolutely. I mean, he was a sociopath. And so he would, he, and a con man, and they may not be mutually exclusive, but he was the one who was always going to blame whatever, you know, malady, whatever didn't go right, he was going to blame it on the next person. So he would never say, you know, to to the community, you know, I've made a mistake here. We need to figure this or redo that. That was never, ever in his vocabulary. So it, as soon as things started going wrong, um, he was finding people to blame and he was trying to say, okay, well, if we can't get over this, then, you know, suicide or murder is going to be one of the options we have to take a look at. So as we talked, though, there were about 10 things that came up that he just could not out manipulate 10, about 10 different things in the community robbed him of the power and the ego strength to move forward uh you talked about his references to suicide i mean he called a lot of white knights could you explain more about the white knights because it, it almost seems uh not real the things that i've read right. about him. um one of the things that jim did early on even when we were back in the united states was he would have kind of dramatic play or thespian play and so he had learned um as as he became a leader of people's temple he looked at other people who were leaders to see how they did it and so he studied hitler quite a lot figuring out how hitler was able to manipulate people he talked about he studied father divine who was an interracial leader in the united states who had a religious movement that was integrated and Father Divine told him kind of a simpler thing. Find an enemy. It has to be we, they. And always make sure that people know who the enemy is because it'll unify the people within your group. So he talked to them. And then he talked to a number of other people around the country. I mean, he talked to a professor who um, died, had a uh, drama about how people were uh, brainwashed into the um, the Nazi regime and different things. So Jim Jones was a very astute student of trying to find out who could manipulate the best and stealing their lines. So early on, he did that. Um, so tell me again what your question was. 
Um, just about the the White Knights. Uh, oh, the White Knights, which, which essentially is almost uh, Jim Jones' flaunt in his oracle skills. You know, his public speaking, right. almost, isn't it? Okay, so so there are a couple things about the White Knights. One is that you know Jim had services. We had services Friday night, Saturday afternoon, into evening, Sunday morning, Sunday night, and then again on Wednesday night. So we had services you know, around the clock. And one of the things that Jim would have to do is create some kind of a buzz from one meeting to the next so that if you miss the meeting, you really feel like you had missed a very important part of the dynamic of People's Temple. So he was all into drama. So that's one thing. So he wouldn't have a meeting that he just stood up there and gave a sermon. He would have to have a meeting that, you know, in his robe, he would fly off the podium. He'd throw the the uh, Bible down and jump on it. He would, you know, say things that were outrageous or do things that were outrageous. So he was a person of drama, knowing that he needed to keep people's attention. So one of the things that he did is there was a planning commission meeting in San Francisco and all the members of the planning commission were there. And so about a hundred of us, because I was on the planning commission from about 1972 on, and we were, the planning commission was a group of people who, um, either they were the really hard workers or they were people Jim wanted to watch or they were spouses of people Jim wanted to watch or they were people Jim wanted to have sex with and get more um, intimate with. So it, a combination of a many different people made up that hundred group of 100 and that we were all races. So the first white night that I can remember was sitting in the – an auditorium at a high school where we had meetings while our temple was being built. And at the beginning of the planning commission, Jim handed out punch to everybody in the audience. So all the members of the planning commission had this punch and we said, you know, that's never happened before. We've never been given punch when we just show up at a planning commission meeting. And then he had shills that were dropping off of their chairs, pretending to be dead. And so then afterwards, you know, as we were there, he said, okay, so some of, I've given all of you poison. Everybody in this planning commission is going to die. And the reason we're dying is to make a point that we need to be heard. We need to commit revolutionary suicide because the world can't go on the way it is. And we need to be absolutely clear when we're making a statement to the government that we're not going to have racism, you know, pandemic racism and hate as what's going on in our world. So he created that um, revolutionary suicide or white night to get everybody's attention. And so that did what Father Divine and Hitler and all these other people had shown him, which is make sure that we know that there's an enemy which was everybody outside of People's Temple because we were the holy group. We were the gifted group. And so everybody else was to get the message that we would die rather than compromise. So the the thing that's interesting about that is in the United States in the 1950s and 60s, we did have a saying, better dead than red. You know, and so it's not unusual 
when you look at the historical markers in our country that people said, okay, well, I'm not going to compromise this. I'd rather be dead than have that, have the Soviets organize my life or rather be dead than this or that. So there was that conversation in kind of a small groups. And then in 1972, Huey Newton, who was one of the leaders of the Black Panthers, wrote a book called Revolutionary Suicide. And Jim just took over the title. He didn't uh, do it justice with what was in the book, but he took over the title Revolutionary Suicide and really took that as his um, phrase to be used Top over the next five years. Yeah. To put it in, a, in quite menial terms. But you, you mentioned about, you know, better dead than red. For people who don't know, the People's Temple was a socialist group and socialist movement. But it also stemmed from religion and, and Jim's background as a, a preacher. Do you feel the movement almost lost any of its religious side to it and focused on the socialist aspect? Well, I think that religion under Jim Jones was a total sham. I think that early on when he was a high school student and going into college, he would visit different churches and he would see a minister up in front, you know, in the pulpit in front of a thousand people who were worshiping the minister. And he said, you know, that's the job I want. I had nothing to do with religion. He wanted the trappings, all the trappings of being a man of religion. So his faith, I I am not at all convinced that he had any faith other than he wanted to be in the role of God. He wanted to be in the role of the most uh, worshipped person on earth. So um, I considered the whole discussion of church and people's temple, really they were worlds apart. He just used the trappings. But we were a politically active church from day one. So when Jim started the church and he insisted on it being integrated and he and his wife were the first white couple to adopt a black child in the state of Indiana, um, early on he said, you know what, my mark or my position or everything I believe in is to show that the world has to get rid of racism and and become a socialist state. So really the religion was very, um, you know, a very small part of what happened, even though he could play it. If he were talking to somebody who was religious, he could make it seem like, oh, yeah, religion's all it's all about religion. But the reality, the way he lived his life and the way he preached and, you know, the way we he taught us, really, we were a socialist cell trying to be totally integrated and, you know, show decency for everybody. So religion was really not a part. And I think probably if there were a what you know, waiting in some, on some uh, stage someplace, he'd be chuckling at how many people thought it was a religion. It's almost like a a, a god complex of wanting to be yes. worshipped by so many people, um, which, which make it's quite profound as well because you talk about the the religious aspect and the socialist aspect and the fact that he wanted to eliminate racism. In itself, the People's Temple had fantastic. Uh, values and and viewpoints which also makes which makes it i don't know even more shocking the events that happened at jonestown 
1978. That's exactly true. I mean, I think that he um, he was a con man, and so his very first love was the love of himself and getting himself into a position of being you know, trusted, totally trusted and loved and worshipped. And so that was his number one choice. And I think sometimes if we confuse it by saying, oh, no, he was first in civil rights. No, he was first number one, Jim Jones. Jim Jones needs the the air of respectability. He needs the power. He needs all those things. So if you confuse who Jim Jones was, by some of the things he did, you're going on the wrong track because he was for Jim Jones number one. We should probably mention the events that Jonestown that make it so famous, unfortunately. The events of 18th of November, 1978. Uh, now, you had left the, the commune a month before. Uh, why was right. that? So, um, when I moved to... Um, I moved into California in March of 1970, and I lived in part of the communes, you know, in People's Temple for that period of time. In about seven years later, Jim asked me if I would move to Guyana. In um, the end of 1975, we started having a community in Jonestown because um, for a number of different reasons. One reason was that one of our young men in People's Temple overdosed on heroin on the streets of San Francisco. And we said, you know, here we are. We have all these services, a soup kitchen. We're taking people, giving people housing. We're nurturing them, getting them out of jail, getting them off of drugs. And yet we can't protect this one kid who you know, got into drugs in San Francisco. So we started talking about a promised land and we created a group that went over that would start the construction. So that was in um, the end of 1975. In March of 1977, Jim asked me if I would go to Guyana and my job would be a procurer. So what I would do is I moved to Guyana I picked up people at the airport when they came in. I took them through residency, got them their supplies, and I put them on the boat to get out to Jonestown. And I also bought all the supplies, all the food for people living in Jonestown. So I bought all the fruits and coconuts and cassava and things like that. And I would go to the abattoir and get sides of beef and clean fish and send frozen fish out. So a group of us were the supply Route And so any anybody who came into Guyana would go in on the boat and we would pack the boat with all the broken, um, you know, machinery parts, repairs that we needed and all the food. So I lived for a year in Georgetown, Guyana, even though I went into Jonestown from time to time. But I lived in Georgetown for a year. And then in March of 1978, I was sent back to Jonestown. And so I lived in Jonestown from March of 78 through the end of October of 78. So during this time, it was a very tumultuous time for Jim Jones, although the rest of us in the community didn't really know fully what was going on. But um, I said earlier, there were about 10 different things that were going wrong in Jonestown, and they all kind of came to a head during that time. One of the things was that nine different parents of, of kids who were in Jonestown took Jim to court 
in the in Georgetown and said that he had their children there without prior authorization. And so he had to give them back. So those cases were going through the courts. So an interesting part of that is that one part of those nine people who wanted to get their children out of Guyana, there was an attempt or there was a plan to go into Guyana, into Jonestown and get those nine kids and take them out and save them. And so Jim created a white knight about that. And he said, you know what? They're going to come and take our children. They want to take all our children away from us and take them out of the community. So he didn't talk about the nine children that he had that he didn't have legal status with. He said they were going to come in and get all the 300 children who lived in Jonestown. So he created this, um, you know, created this drama when really there were nine children whose whose uh, citizenship in Guyana was being challenged, but he would never admit that. <clears throat> so that was one thing that was going on. And so the government of Guyana asked him to just stay in Jonestown until they could get it all resolved. So here's this guy who would see 10,000 people on a weekend at different meetings and he was under house arrest in Jonestown, this really remote little village with a thousand people who were all farm workers, because that's what we became. And we were exhausted all the time. So he would go into a meeting all stoked with, you know, the brightest, best and brightest new conversation. And we just fall asleep in front of him because we were so tired. So this guy with the ego didn't know what to do with that either. Did you feel as as tensions grew with Jim, and obviously he, he was uh, he was embroiled in a lot of drug use and apparently had temper problems. Did you ever feel that violence or or something aggressive was on the horizon? You know, I didn't, and part of that was because as he was using more and more drugs, his mistresses and secretaries had really become. Um, you know, made ill or tainted by the same thing. And so they just kept him out of the limelight. So if there were a night that Jim was like stumbling around and couldn't walk because of drugs, they wouldn't have him go out of his cottage. So much of what happened with him behind the scenes was were things that we didn't see in the community. And the community was moving ahead. Like in the community, we were building a cottage every week. We already had five big dormitories. We had 52 cottages. We were feeding the 1,000 people three meals a day. We had our cottage industry with hill rice and sewing clothing and toys and um you know, making uh, wooden dolls and jewelry, all these different things were going on. And so we really were distracted, not watching what was going on with Jim so much because he was in the community less and less. And so the problem with that is that his mistresses and secretaries got more and more involved in his insanity and drug use and physical ailments. And the rest of us were just, you know, working our tails off to get our community back together. And at the time, like I thought, you know what, we will get our community built so it's not so primitive. 
And then we can stop and reflect and figure out what it is that needs to be fixed. But Jim was not going to do that because it, it involved him admitting that he had made some mistakes. And really early on, he, you know, we could have seen that he was not going to do that. With Jim's, you were talking about his, his deteriorating mental health and the mistresses keeping him out of it, the limelight. Uh, mm-hmm. we, should, we should probably explain the, the events of uh, the 18th of November, 1978. Is the, right. Uh, I mean, interject whenever you want, because you're obviously more of an expert than me. But uh, on one end of it, Congressman Leo Ryan had come for a visit with reporters and journalists and uh, took out some defectors who wanted to leave and uh, was then killed when trying to leave the country on a plane back in Jonestown, Jim Jones called a meeting uh, calling for an act of revolutionary suicide and, you know, 908 people in Jonestown killed themselves. Do you feel that the Jim Jones of prior to that would have been capable of ordering the deaths of all those people? Or do you think it was to do with his deteriorating mental health towards the end? Well, I think it's all part of the same thing, but there were more things that actually hit him just before Congressman Ryan's visit. So, so you know, we talked about the children. We talked about Jonestown not being self-sufficient. We knew about money had to go out to keep enough food coming in. So we knew that. Then in May, one of his top uh, mistresses and secretaries who was in charge of the money she left so Debbie Layton left in May of 1978 so she had all the secrets so then Jim tried to stop everything catch her and everything that didn't work and then back in the United States a group called Concerned Relatives started hearing stories about their relatives and they said you know they went to court they went to elected officials they contacted the news media and they said Jim is not letting our families leave from Guyana they want to go and Jim won't let them leave so the Concerned Relatives kept up a very active vocal voice in the Bay Area saying, okay, Jim Jones has our family members, what are we going to do? So they were very much involved in bringing a lot of attention to Jim Jones. And then Rupert Murdoch had his magazine, New West, and he assigned an investigator over those last two years to figure out who is Jim Jones? He's never been vetted. All of a sudden he has a thousand people of our loved ones in Guyana. Who even picked Guyana? Who is just Jim Jones. So he had an investigator look up things about Jim Jones and find things that Jim had covered over the years. Like Jim had been involved in a sting operation in 1972 in Los Angeles when he approached a policeman for um, sexual favors. And it turns out there was another one back from Indiana where he had been in a sting operation also. So that was all coming up. And then in October, Terry Buford, another one of his mistresses and secretaries, she left with Mark Lane, one of the attorneys. So all of that was going on. And then Congressman Ryan said, I'm coming down to Guyana because I want to see what's going on with my former electorate. You know, the people who were part of my um, San Mateo you know, group that I've supported and I represent. And so Jim said, no, you're not coming down. 
And Congressman Ryan said, well, yeah, I am going to come down. And so they had, you know, a back and forth for a while. And then eventually Congressman Ryan came down. So Jim was in the middle of every one of these dramatic situations that he couldn't handle. And, you know, he was using drugs more. He had um, all his his enablers around him who were helping him plan things and who were as infected by his mental illness as he was. And so when Congressman Ryan came down, in a way, Jim said, you know, there's no way out. There's not any graceful way that I can come out a winner. And I have to come out a winner. That's just the way I am. So at the end of October, Jim sent me back into Georgetown to do the job I had been doing before. He sent the uh, basketball team um, because they were doing playing intramural sports with the with guy his, in East team. With his son with, a part of as well, isn't it? Right, with two of his sons, Jimmy and Stephen. So they came back to Georgetown with me. So about 50 of us lived in Georgetown. And then Jonestown was going on, but all these things were going on and Jim was getting, you know, hit by the news over and over again. He wanted to get as many people to Jonestown as possible. And then in November 15th or 16th, Congressman Ryan came to town. And the first thing he did when he came to town was come to the house in Georgetown where I was. And he climbed over the back fence and he told people, you know, he's a congressman from San Mateo. He's just checking that everything's okay. And Jim had set up the house with people who loved Jonestown. So it was no accident who was in the house. Like he was not going to have somebody who was going to whine about things in Jonestown. He picked people who were really delighted by all the movement we're doing there. So when Congressman Ryan came through, he said, okay, um, how are things? And we all said to a one, everything is wonderful. We love it here. We don't want to go anyplace else. And then Sharon Amos, who was Jim's confidant and one of his main secretaries, kicked Ryan out of the house in Georgetown and said, you know, this is private property and you're not invited. So she kicked him out of the house in Georgetown. And a few days later, Congressman Ryan went out to Jonestown and got in with some members of the concerned relatives, with some media crew, and um, they were put. Then the whole show was put on for them. You know, they had a musical, and all our really talented people in in Guyana were just, you know, delighted to show different songs we'd come up with, and you know, drama and music, just wonderful things. And Congressman Ryan got up at the end of the evening and said, you know. It's been wonderful to be here. I can tell many of you love it. Certainly your community is amazing that you've done so much in one year. And uh, I just I can just see how proud you are of it. And then he stepped off the podium and people in Jonestown started handing him notes saying, you know what, I want to go. Don't believe Jim. If Jim says he'll let us go next week, don't believe it. That's not going to happen. So be sure you let us get out with you. You need to take us with you. So Congressman Ryan had to order another plane to come in because mm-hmm. he had not come in with any empty seats on his planes. So the next day, 12 or 15 people did arrange to leave that day and they left with Ryan in the late afternoon 
And when they got to the airstrip, Jim sent people with guns to the airstrip with instructions to kill Congressman Ryan and everybody else you could, but especially kill Congressman Ryan. And then back in Jonestown, he had all the people in Jonestown, the other 900 or, or more, gather in the pavilion, and he coerced them into killing themselves. He said, you can't go back. You don't have any money. The, your families are not going to have anything to do with you. They don't have money to fight your court battles. You have conspired with me to kill a congressman. Um, nobody's going to want to take you in. Your children are going to go into the foster care system in San Francisco, which was horrific and everybody knew it. There's no way out. And then he just proceeded to beat down the people who were just exhausted and saying that there was no way out, no choice. And then as Mr. Stairs and Secretary started going in the outside area of the pavilion and giving the, pill, the poison to the children. And then once the parents who were sitting in the middle saw that their own children had been poisoned, they, you know, they had no will to figure out any other alternative than what Jim was telling them to do. I mean, it is, it's disturbing. I think unquestionably as well, it's black, emotional blackmail, you know, stood on a podium from Jim Jones's part. Do you feel that it was mass murder by uh, Jim Jones as opposed to mass suicide? Oh, absolutely mass murder. There was no question. People did not want to die. They did not go to Guyana to die. They went to Guyana for a lot of different reasons. Some people went because they were following Jim and thought that Jim was going to create this utopian society. Some people in the American system said, I'm getting out of the United States. There's too much racism, police brutality, and, you know, my son's at risk being on the street. He could be picked up with no legal representation and put in prison. So many people left because being black in America at that time was a very dangerous skin color. And so people left for that. So people left for a lot of different reasons. But once they got down there and they saw the community, it was workable until Jim's insanity just would not allow civilization to happen. I'm about to ask quite an emotional question. If you don't want to answer, that's completely understandable. But do you feel you would have taken the poison as well if you were at Jonestown at that point? I really have no question. If I were in Jonestown, um, I would have no question because I couldn't. I could not watch nine hundred other people die, and think that there was anything that I could live for. I mean, that was everything. That was my life. That was my politics. That was my my deepest philosophy. They were my friends and adopted family. So I I just can't imagine having survived. Watching that happen and surviving it, I can't imagine it. That makes sense. Um, you talk about how close you were with the people of Jonestown. Do you remember where you were and what you thought when you first found out about the atrocities that happened? 
Yeah, so I was in Georgetown, and the first thing that happened was uh, Jim sent a coded message over the radio that said, okay, everybody's committing revolutionary suicide in Jonestown. Everybody's dying. And this was in code, right? It wasn't just those words. And uh, he said, everybody in Georgetown, San Francisco, Redwood Valley, Los Angeles, you all need to commit revolutionary suicide. So uh, I was in the house, but I had only par. So Sharon Amos, again, got me and had me drive across town to get Stephen and Jimmy and a few other people who were in leadership in town and bring them back to the house. So I brought them back to the house where we were all living, and they had an upstairs back bedroom, and they all went up there to talk. And Sharon explained that Jim had wanted everybody to commit revolutionary suicide. And Stephen and Jimmy said, absolutely not. And Jimmy, Stephen even went to the U.S. Embassy to get an, a helicopter to fly out to Jonestown to stop in Jonestown. He said, absolutely not. We are not killing ourselves. This is not, this is not revolutionary suicide. But he couldn't get out there. You know, it's just being in Guyana, there was no way for him to make it out to Jonestown and make a difference. So instead, in the house, they said, okay, we're not going to tell anybody. Nobody's going to know this is going on. Let's just go about our business. And so they did not tell the rest of us, the other 45 of us in the house, anything about it. So we kept going about our regular business. Like I had to go to a, a, a talent show put on by the People's National Congress. We all had jobs, you know, mm-hmm. early in the morning to late at night. So everybody in the house had someplace to go on a Friday night. And when we came back, the Guyanese Defense Force had taken over the house. And they said they had heard rumors of deaths in Jonestown. And uh, they were just checking on us. And then finally they had us all sit down in the living room in the house. And as we were sitting there, they brought out the body bags of Sharon Amos and her three children. And and she had killed her three children and then herself in the house in Georgetown. And in a way, that's when we knew that people were dying. People were dying in Georgetown and in Jonestown. Uh, What were your initial feelings when you were told that? Because I can imagine that's quite... A distressing thing to be well i think that all of us just couldn't believe it because there might have been in the house four or five people who knew that there had been that kind of discussion going on in jonestown but i think the rest of us were completely blindsided by it and caught by surprise and we just couldn't believe it and so as we were there stunned And we saw Sharon's body bag come out. Still, it didn't, you know, it didn't connect with what was going on. It wasn't until we started hearing reports, oh, no, they found 300 bodies in Jonestown. Oh, no, there are really 600 bodies. Over the next few days, we started getting the worse and worse news. Um, The Guyanese uh, news media put a news blackout because they were so compromised in the situation. They didn't know what to do. So they had a news blackout, but we called home to talk to our relatives back in the United States and they would tell us what the most recent news was. Um, I would just say that we were completely blown out of the water. I mean, we were traumatized and crying and 
trying to make sense of things and trying to understand and denying it, saying maybe everybody didn't die. So, I mean, we went through all of it for that next 10 days, just not being able to admit that that really happened. Um, An interesting thing that I've just learned of just within the last couple of weeks is that when, you know, in Jonestown, every that had exactly as much poison as it needed, had the flavor aid it needed, it had exact, like every everything was organized to a T, right, by Jim's mistresses and secretaries. Jim couldn't do it because he was already down for the count, but the other people in the community created the, you know, had the syringes, had the poison, had all of that. But when the message came out over the radio for people to take their own lives, in a way, there was no preparation in any of the other facilities. There was no poison in Georgetown. Um, There was no poison in Redwood Valley or San Francisco. And in a way, unlike every other thing in People's Temple where everything was organized and planned and checklisted and, you know, every thing was put together and somebody assigned to do it in a way that there was no uh, plan for the suicide in Georgetown it's probably another thing that saved our lives with you being in Jonestown while the events were going on do you ever feel lucky that you were there or did you just feel guilty almost that you weren't like a survivor's guilt Um, you know I for the first probably 15 years, I had survivor's guilt because of the people who died, I certainly was not the best person. You know, I just wasn't there, There's no way to to put people on a scale of who's the best, who's the worst. I mean, I didn't lose any children. There are people who lost five children. I mean, there was no way to compare and there was no there's no justice on who survived and who didn't. There's no reason that I would be the one who survived and the person next to me would be the one who didn't. And so, I mean, to this day, I have horrible survivor's guilt because it's so random. So, I mean, I am an atheist. And over the years, people have said, oh, bless you. You must have been saved for something. You, you know, you had, you were so good that that God couldn't take you or something like that. But I don't believe any of that because the people who died there, they were the best people in the world. And so it's almost demeaning to tell me that I had some, you know, inner value that they don't have. So it's, it's like an insult. Like, don't tell me that. So what I've done in, in response is when I speak, I say, you know, that day, 918 people died. Jim Jones was one, but there were 917 other people. So instead of focusing on Jim Jones, who his sexual partners were, what color his underwear was, what he had for breakfast, really 917 other wonderful people died that day. And so I want to focus on those people, not on Jim Jones, enough already about Jim Jones. We do know uh, all about him, his psychoses, his pathology. We know so much about him and really not enough attention is given to the other 917 who were trying to make a world for themselves. You were involved in the uh, memorial, weren't you, in 
California for all the people who died in Jonestown. Um, right. And you, you've met up with some of the survivors, haven't you, of the people who right. fled? So, hmm. so I have an email list of about 70 survivors. And so it's, it's the whole range. It's people who come out on November 18th, but otherwise we call it stay in the people's temple closet. You know, they're not public. They don't talk about it and stuff like that. Um, so we have, and we have this time for the first time we had relatives, like we had granddaughters and nieces of people who were um, survivors and granddaughters and nieces of people who died in Jonestown. So they were victims. And so what it's become is... Um, a reminder of what could have been and kind of a support group for people who didn't get it all these years. And like one family that came out this year, really they, um, their family just fell apart when their, you know, the mother and her three kids died in Jonestown. They, they never understood it. They never could come to terms with it and really it just destroyed their lives from that point on because that group that went to Guyana they were the ones who were the up and coming people who wanted to make a better world and then all of a sudden they were destroyed so I mean I think that that's another part of talking about not Jim Jones but the other people who survived Mm -hmm. it's not just 917 people it's the family members of those 917 and the family members of other survivors I mean they're just enormous stories of people who were um, accidentally hit by the shrapnel really of Jonestown the devastation the emotional devastation must have been huge with the amount of victims that stem from it Um, that's right one thing I wanted to ask you, obviously you've written books about Jonestown, you've written uh, Jonestown Survivor and Inside's Look. Did you find it cathartic almost to write the book about Jonestown and get all your things, your ideas on paper? Yeah, it definitely did because one of the things that happens is people will come up to me and they say, well, so you were part of People's Temple and I'll say yes. And they say, well, that was in Ghana, right? And I said, no, that was in Guyana. South America. And so one of the things it does is it it allows people to get educated before they, you know, come up to me with ignorant statements. So that I always appreciate that. That's why I always appreciate when people do when the interviewers do their homework, you know, that I don't have to start from the beginning. Yes. So it was the South Southern Hemisphere. (laughs) And it was you know, like I, I always appreciate that. So what the book did is it gave basics. And then, really, I published in 2010, and I've had lots of insights since then. And right now, I am working on a second book, and part of the book is the unintended victims of of Jonestown and People's Temple. And so I'm talking about the people who were, you know, the nieces and nephews of people who died there, or the people who are still in prison, because when they came back, they were raised by distraught and traumatized parents and then the kids were distraught and traumatized and we have four or five or six who either recently got out of being incarcerated or who are in jail for life because they were raised by the traumatized victims uh, you know the survivors so there there are many parts of looking at people's temple to get an idea of 
of all the different ramifications, I'd say. I think that's quite a poignant point about the almost often overlooked victim. They are because they are victims of Jonestown in in that's right. sense, not in the conventional sense, but um, and I, I'll I'll start closing the interview down because I don't. Want, I'm sure you could talk for forever, and I don't want to keep you for too long. Is there is there anything you you'd like to is there anything that you'd like to say about Jonestown to close off? <laughs> Well, I would say that, you know, one of the other survivors, Jordan Vilches, and I went back to Guyana last March, and it was really awesome. I mean, it was wonderful to see that the rainforest had taken back over. It was wonderful to meet the people who had been so gracious to us when we were, you know, when we first went down to Guyana, we were all, you know, like teachers and, you know, bus drivers and stuff like that. And the Guyanese showed us how to plant things, grow things, build our community, do construction, everything. They were the most welcoming, wonderful people in the world. And then when everything happened in Jonestown, every, we just like walked off as if we didn't have to say thank you or anything. And so Jordan and I went back down there and we had a, a family, you know, a, a community meeting where, you know, lots of people came from the local community where we docked our boat. And so I think that, you know, there's so, so many lessons to learn about Guyana and, you know, that our role as a rich white church, and even though we weren't, you know, white, completely the leadership was white mm -hmm. and even though it wasn't rich that we would spend you know we were very frugal at the time but you know we had a debt to Guyana because they gave us their homes and shared their homes with us and so and their point of view is a very powerful point of view of who can just walk into another country create this kind of hell on earth and then the people walk away as if there's no regret or no fixing or something. So um, that was a very important new conversation to open up. Um, I also think that what I learned in People's Temple and what I've learned in the other cult I joined afterwards is that things are never so good that you can stop your critical thinking. There's never a time that you're so blissfully happy that you don't have to watch for everything. Jim Jones was a con man from day one. And somehow this same con man conned me and other really smart, dedicated people. And he killed 917 other people. So this con man somehow was able to figure out how to pull our strings, how to create, you know, a world that we would feel we have to follow his instruction. So, and those kind of people are around. Jim was not the only one in the world who's been like that. We can look at political leaders who work really hard to divide and conquer we can see political leaders who say the end justifies the means, which is what Jim said every day. And we just have to be totally alert that in our environment, we cannot be naive. We cannot just think, oh, yeah, things are going to work out okay. Things do not work out okay unless you keep an eye on them. 
in any area, and this is a perfect example, Jim had way too much power from those of us who thought he was a protector. Well, I think that's a very poignant and meaningful message to to end our interview on. I'd like to say that you're, you're a very inspirational woman, and it's been a very eye-opening conversation, and I want to thank you for agreeing to it. Well, thank you very much for being interested to interview me.